0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were 2, a history of the world series. I'm Jeffrey Clark alongside Lucas Smithson. and even though our schedule's been uninterrupted, this is actually our first time recording in almost a month. Lucas, we kind of alluded to this a couple episodes back, but why did we take such a long break?
1: So, in between, and I had to go back and look at the uh, calendar of release dates, so between our 1914 and 1915 episodes, I had, well... I mean, technically I had, my my wife had, you know, if we want to get into the the semantics of it all. But we had our our third kid, Milo Morgan-Mitzel, was born on May 21st, 2022. She is home. She is healthy. She is happy. We are recording this the evening of Wednesday, June 15th. She is currently sleeping fingers crossed that it stays that way as we record this episode and we don't have to have a weird unnatural pause in the middle where i go to grab her and half this podcast gets recorded with uh, me holding her in my lap
0: it'll be a very interesting episode to say the least if it comes to that and well i guess we'll see so, we might be a little rusty, not having recorded in almost a month, but we'll do our best considering the content of our 1918 episodes. Now, I know we said our last episode in 1919 would be the most anticipated episode, but 1918 is very interesting in its own right. You see, it was about a year into World War One, and... 1917 baseball was not really affected by the war but that all changed in 1918 because that's when America was actively involved and it got to a point where baseball rosters were very ravaged by players entering the service so baseball looked very different as far as the names involved and Harry Frazzi, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, he had lost over half of his team from the previous year because of drafting, enlistment, or otherwise working in the war industry. So he decided to round out his roster by buying players from the last place Philadelphia Athletics for about $60,000. Among the players who were new to the Red Sox were Wally Schenck, Bullets Joe Bush, and Gloucester, Massachusetts native Stuffy McGinnis, and he predicted publicly 6-1 to odds that the war would be over by opening day. Didn't happen. In fact, the war was in such full force that conditions were constantly changing. Uh, Amos Strunk was another player, by the way, who was bought for $60,000, and the Red Sox were... In the middle of a wire-to-wire season when provost marshal general crowder issued a work or fight order in june of that year and baseball did not attempt to claim essential employment status on the grounds of aiding public morale and the season was ordered to be over by labor day and what work or fight for those who don't know meant that all males in the country ages 21 to 30 had to either Enlist in the armed services, make themselves available for the draft, or work in industry that was actively aiding the war effort. And as the season went on, the Red Sox kept on losing players. Dutch Leonard, who threw a no hitter for the Red Sox during the season, he enlisted in the uh, armed forces and left the team. Jack Barry, the manager, was drafted, and Ed Barrow had to take over the managerial duties and this was all happening while Babe Ruth was establishing himself as a dominant hitter in addition to being a good pitcher and he really wanted to hit and he showed with his 300 bang average 11 triples 11 home runs and 66 RBIs at 317 at bats
1: yeah a 966 OPS for one George Herman Ruth in this season and there's a part of me like I'm glad we live in the timeline that we do where Babe Ruth wasn't somebody who was drafted and ended up having to go serve overseas and Lord knows what would have happened in an instance like that. And It's interesting a little bit hearing about this because those of you who are familiar with your world history know that this sort of thing is going to come up again in about six months of the course of this podcast when we get into the uh, early 1940s.
0: Yes, and They actually negotiated the deal to have the World Series be played, but Newton Baker, the Secretary of War, said it had to end by September 15th. Because, again, baseball players were not exempt from this worker or fight order. And I'm sure a lot of players were eager to get the season over so they could go fight for their country. Now, spoiler alert, the war did end in November of 1918. But I'm sure that didn't stop players who were playing baseball from being eager to enlist and fight for their country. But in any event, despite everything that was going on, the Red Sox, like I said, they went wire to wire. And they were back in the World Series, you know, they won the World Series in 1912, 1915, 1916. Now here they are back in 1918, and they are playing the Chicago Cubs, their first pen since the Tinker-Evers-Chance dynasty broke up. They had Grover, Cleveland, Alexander as their franchise player going into the season, but he entered the Army after only pitching three games. The rest of the team had names that, for the most part, probably lost on most Cubs fans, Charlie Hollicker, Dope Hasker, Lesman, Claude Hendricks, but they dominated the National League, leading in both runs scored and against.
1: Yeah, well, when you've got Hippo Vaughn, who posted a 174 ERA in the uh, 1918 season, struck out 148 batters, had a whip of just a hair over one, leading your rotation, you're in good shape. Uh, lefty Tyler posting an ERA of two, Phil Douglas at 213. Hendricks and Vaughn both 20-game winners for the Cubs in this particular season. And the one name looking at the roster that um, caught my eye was a decade after his boner helped get the Cubs into the World Series, Fred Merkel contributing directly to the Cubs winning another pennant thanks to a 297 batting average, three homers, 65 RBIs for the the Cubs in 1918.
0: Yes, but you also have to remember, as we've made pretty clear by now, that the losses of so many players because of drafting or enlistment, it affected the pennant. And like you alluded to before, war will affect another few baseball seasons down the road. But in the meantime, we have our first and only September World Series being played. And the Cubs were facing Babe Ruth in Game 1. Ruth, by the way, during the season, he started 19 games and finished all but one. Finished with a 13-7 record and a 2.22 ERA. And of course, by now, he is such a household name that, or at least in Boston, that a lot of people probably thought that he was going to play Major Factor, and he would. But the Cubs would play their World Series games at home at Comiskey Park because following the lead of teams like these very same Boston Red Sox and so forth during the decade, they thought that a bigger crowd would want to show up, so they played in a ballpark that was bigger than Wegman Park, which is now Wrigley Field, and as we'll find out in this episode, that was not even needed because none of these games in Chicago sold out.
1: Yeah, no, there was a lot of issue about everything with this, you know, low gate receipts and players were threatening to strike because of that being a factor. And it's interesting to me that now you have Chicago running into this, you know, we're going to switch ballparks for this series. And I'm trying to imagine how that would go over today, either in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, any one of these major markets that have multiple teams. And heck, I mean, if you wanted to throw the Nationals in there instead of playing a game at Nationals Park, going up the road a little bit and playing in Baltimore, for example.
0: Well, it's something that I don't think anyone would consider because of all the money that's at stake now. But, and we'll get into all the player strike stuff in a little bit. But first of all, an interesting fact about Game 1, as long as we're sticking with the whole war patriotism thing, this was actually the first time that the Star Spangled Banner was played at a baseball game because during what we now know as the 7th inning stretch, the band that was on Hannah at Comiskey Park played the Star Spangled Banner. And the Red Sox had third baseman Fred Thomas, who had been in the Navy for most of the season, but he was permitted to join the team for the series. He stood attention and swooed the flag. The rest of the players followed and the crowd loved it. So that happened. The same thing stretched for the rest of the series. And ever since then, the Star Spangled Banner has been played at every World Series game. And the tradition of it happening before the game would not come about until the start of World War II. And by then, PA systems were a thing so it's very interesting to know i mean i did not know this before i did my research on this that the whole tradition of the star spangled bear being played at baseball games started in chicago
1: yeah i mean you think about anthems and sports and the two of us being from chicago obviously we are well aware of the history of the national anthem at chicago blackhawks games that have been going on for you know 30 years at this point and you look back at the 1991 NHL all-star game is the prime example of that and it's one of those you really have to be at the madhouse to truly experience the anthem because you know it's one thing to see it on tv but it's something totally different to actually be there in person but yeah all of this stems back from the U.S.'s entry into world war one and you know it makes sense that something like this would be what really spearheads it and Star-Spangled Banner doesn't become the, the official national anthem of the U.S. until 1931, and then you have the decade later of the entry into World War II, you have it become a pregame thing, and then everybody else picks up on it, and here we are today.
0: And of course, uh, more recent years, the national anthem being played at sporting events has become a... Uh... More political issue that I think any of us ever anticipated, but we're not here to talk about that. We don't want to piss anybody off here.
1: That was my thought when I was reading the story, too, was knowing that you have this whole subtext, and I don't want to say you can blame it all on the Cubs and the Red Sox, but to some degree you can blame it all on the Cubs and the Red Sox. But yeah, no, we're not touching this issue any further than just noting, oh, hey, this is where it started.
0: So game one, Babe Ruth was the pitcher that people were familiar with. He pitched a six-hit shutout, one to nothing was the final score, beat Hippo Vaughn, and really not much to say here. The Red Sox got their only run in the fourth inning, 19,274, which is a low attendance for Comiskey Park and really any baseball game. That's going to set a trend for uh, the rest of the series, but so far so good for the babe. He ran into a little
1: bit of trouble in the
0: bottom of the first. Got the first
1: two guys out. Gave up back-to-back singles and then a walk to load the bases. But Charlie Pick flew out to left to end the threat. And really, other than that, the Cubs got a leadoff man on in the third. Hit by pitch in the bottom of the fifth. And just really looking through this, the bottom of the sixth, they got a couple men on with only one out. But they couldn't get through. Babe Ruth was able to work himself out of the jams that he faced. And it was a nice, good old-fashioned pitcher's duel, one nothing win.
0: So we get to Game 2, and at this point, Babe Ruth is, like we said earlier, a much more established hitter than he has been before. And he wants to hit. He likes pitching, but he likes hitting even more at this point. And he actually came to heads with Barrow quite a bit during the regular season. You know, it got to a point at one point during the season where he was so mad about not hitting that he watched the rest of the game in the stands. And to Barrow's credit, uh, at least traditionally, he would not hit Ruth in the games they wasn't pitching. Basically an anti show hale situation because Ruth was a left-handed hitter and the Cubs were pitching all lefties in this series probably because of Babe Ruth's power. So... Even though the Red Sox were down by a pair in the ninth inning of Game 2, Barrow had an opportunity to pitch hit Ruth, and there were two on with one now. So Ruth didn't have Bass getting ready to go up and hit, but he didn't do it. He passed on Ruth twice in the situation, and consequently the Cubs end up tying the series with a 3-2-1 victory. So I'm sure Ruth was even more pissed than he already had been during the season, or maybe he was just like, well, there he goes again.
1: There's a part of me that wonders, because the final out was made by Wally Shang, who pinch hits initially in the top half of the eighth inning, which goes to show you how much success the Red Sox were having hitting as the game went on, given that uh, his spot came up again to end the game in the ninth. Uh, Shang stayed in to catch. In the bottom of the eighth inning. And there's a part of me that wonders would he have pinch hit Ruth for Bullet Joe Bush had the inning continued? I don't know. And I mean, the Red Sox got off to a good start there in the ninth. They had back to back triples from Amos Strunk and George Whiteman. Strunk himself actually had a really good game in addition to that triple. He threw out two runners from the outfield. He got uh, Charlie Holliker and Lefty Tyler both at second base. The Cubs also had three guys caught stealing in this game, so it was a game full of toot-blands, but managed to make their three-run bottom of the second hold up with Bill Kellefer with an RBI double to open the scoring and lefty Tyler helping his own cause with a two-run single, and then he was subsequently thrown out at second base on an 8-2-6 ultimate putout. But I maintain hitting pitchers forever.
0: Game three also takes place in Chicago. And once again, Ruth is not in the lineup because he's not pitching, but he wasn't really needed because Carl Mays had a fantastic day for the Red Sox. He held the Cubs to a single run. And the difference in the game was George Weitzman. He robbed Doty Paskert of a home run as Baseball Magazine wrote, Weitzman ran and galloped and went tired of galloping, ran some more. He had no more license to catch that ball than the Kaiser has to call himself a gentleman. So nice working into uh, some present-day events at that time. So well when played. the game ended, we have two outs in the ninth. Hippo Vaughn, by the way, was the pitcher for the Cubs in this game. He was very respectable. So with two outs in the ninth. Charlie Pick, the Cubs infield, was thrown out trying to score from second on a passed ball, so maybe not the smartest idea.
1: Yeah, that one definitely puts the uh, like a poop, L.A.N. part of the toot plan there, which, I mean, to his credit, he had singled with two outs in the bottom of the ninth and then was able to steal second base, but yeah, I don't know what you're thinking trying to score from second on a passed ball, and unless you have to go in a little more modern sense, some Javi Baez magic, or you have the wheels of, say, Billy Hamilton, uh, you're going to have a bad time.
0: Yeah, I probably would not even think about that. And I get it. You know, you represent the tying run of the game. But, yeah, you got to be a little bit smarter than that. So the rest of the series shifted to Boston. It was arranged that games four through seven would be played in Boston. And the teams actually took a single train to Boston to save on money and fuel and at this point it's becoming obvious that Gates revenue is not going to be very high. The revenue, by the way, was arranged to be split 55 to 45. The winners were expecting to get at least $2,000 out of it, but at this point it looked like it was going to be less than 1000 So the players on both teams started talking about this and they were none too pleased with it. So Harry Hooper of the Red Sox, we've talked about him before, and Les Mann of the Cubs, they got together and they said that we need to talk to the National Commission and Ban Johnson, the American League president, about rearranging this revenue deal. And they were not able to make it happen. You know, they arranged for it, but they didn't show up at the hotel where they were staying at. So the players, they discussed holding out of game four, but it went on. And to make matters worse for the players, demand was so low that the ticket prices at Fenway Park were dropped to regular season prices. And if that wasn't insulting enough, because of the crazy situation that was going on in the world, the revenue was going to be split not just amongst the teams, but the top four finishers in each league. So the American League teams that would benefit in addition to the Red Sox would be Cleveland, Washington, and New York. In addition to the Cubs and the National League, it would be New York, Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh. So, you know, we keep going to this foreshadowing thing, Lucas, about some shady activity that's going to come later on. But even though it's wartime, the players, they still feel like they deserve some fair payment for playing these extra games. And they're not getting it, so I can't really blame them for being upset here.
1: I can't blame them either. You know, you want to get paid for your work, and I mean, technically this is work. And, you know, the money that they're receiving is obviously nowhere near what players are getting paid now. And, you know, we've broken out the inflation calculator, but, you know, by and large, we're not really looking at uh, superstar money for most of these guys.
0: Absolutely not. So Babe Roof starts game four, but he was forced to pitch with an injured middle finger on his pitching hand. That happened when he got into a scuffle with Walt Kidney on the team train to Boston. Didn't Ray really him at the play. He used his black bat, which was a novelty that a lot of people counted on, to hit a two-run triple. And he held the Cubs scoreless until the eighth inning when the Cubs tied with a couple of runs. And that ended Babe Ruth's World Series scoreless streak at twenty nine and two-thirds innings, so a very nice run for the Babe on the mound, but that had to end at some point, and that record would stand until Whitey Ford would break in 1961. Anyway, the Red Sox took the lead back in the bottom of the eighth when Phil Douglas, the Cubs pitcher, committed a throwing error, and the Red Sox won it by a score of 3-2, to so the Red Sox are up three games to one in what's been a tumultuous series, especially off the field. First of all, you mentioned defensive miscue, drink. Uh,
1: The fun thing with this one, as you look at the lineup, so Babe Ruth, obviously, as the starting pitcher, got to hit in this game. He was listed sixth in the lineup. He is the last starting pitcher in World Series history to bat in a spot other than ninth in the order for almost a century. The next person to do it was Zach Granke when he batted eighth for the Astros in game four of the 2021 World Series.
0: Well, I didn't think that such a recent World Series would be connected to this. By the way, the attendance for Game 4 was 22,183. And Boston's mayor, Fitzgerald, he made a public appeal to the players on account of patriotism to take the field for that game. They ultimately gave into to that. But Game 5... Before the game took place, there was even more drama on this issue. Uh, the players on both teams decided that they were not going to play Game 5 unless the revenue deal changed. The National Commission finally met with them underneath these stands, but two other three members were incoherently intoxicated, so there was no way that they could negotiate in good faith with them. So Hooper said to the teams in one of the locker rooms that there will be no further opportunity to argue the case if the Red Sox won Game 5. So, really makes you think about how much integrity was going on in Game 5. Vaughn finally got a win in Game 5. It was 3 2 nothing, but both teams were really going through the motions at that point. 24,694 was the attendance here. So, I mean, it takes a lot to have both teams playing half-heartedly in a World Series game. And granted, we're talking about a different time before the World Series had the prestige, and, you know, we'll talk more about that in our next episode. But can you imagine that, you know, you're going to a World Series game, and granted, you know, your target audience, males ages 21 to 30, are off fighting the war. But can you imagine going to a baseball game and asking yourself, look, I know I'm paying regular season prices here at Fenway Park, but what am I paying to see here, really?
1: Yeah, what what am I watching? And it's especially given the scenario here, it's Boston's got a 3-1 lead, so the Red Sox have an opportunity here to clinch yet another World Series. And, you know, the Cubs are fighting to stave off elimination or I guess fighting using air quotes here. And it's kind of interesting to look back on this now knowing what we know happens over the next century
0: yes and i think that we will see more of this in our next episode and hopefully that will be after that but just keep in mind the arrangement was and i think always has been that the game revenue from the first four games would count into the winner and loser share so these teams were not paying to make more money because i'm pretty sure that range was put in place to keep things like this from happening but they did maybe because they have another chance to negotiate it you know we don't really know but in any event the series was extended and by the way we should go back to game four real quickly i want to talk about a player on the cubs his name was max flack and he had a very bad game for. Him. He got picked off twice, and then he ignored the signal to back up in right field from his pitcher before Ruth tripled over his head. And remember, this is around the first time that the players were trying and failing to meet with the National Commission. So maybe he was throwing a game on purpose. There were theories that the Cubs were throwing this series. It's never been proven, obviously, but. It really makes you think about how much heart was being put into the players by this. And at this point, it's pretty obvious. There's like no heart involved with anybody.
1: Given all that's going on and you've had these subplots kind of bubbling to the surface a little bit and that we've touched on a little bit in some of our past episodes. But other than that, it's just kind of the main part of we keep foreshadowing something big is coming. We're just not quite there yet.
0: Dan Johnson, by the way, was the person who convinced the players to take the field for Game 5. So we move on to Game 6, and we have a horrible attendance number, 15,238. With the Cubs still facing elimination, they went to lefty Tyler to face Carl Mays. Both men pitched very well, but Flack, he dropped a fly ball in the third inning that allowed two Red Sox to come across home plate and those were the only runs scored by the Red Sox in the game. Mays was the winner in this one, and it clinched the championship for the Red Sox. By the way, Weitzman had another big catch. He dove to snag a low-line drive, and even though he only hit two fifty, he was hailed as the hero of the series. And the Red Sox probably deserved it because they committed only one error in the six games, which is very tough even by today's standards for... A six game series, but the Red Sox and the Cubs combined for only 19 runs, and the Red Sox 186 batting average was the worst ever for a World Series champion. Would it have mattered more if uh, Ruth had been used as a hitter more? We don't know, but it didn't matter because the Red Sox now had five World Championships. But even with all that considered, both the good things and the bad, this was by all accounts even by today's scribes the most joyless world series ever played there was no celebrating people were just waiting for it to be over there was no celebration in the stands no celebration on the field i think people were just done with baseball for a while and if the war had not ended a couple of months later i'd say there's a pretty good chance that there would not have been a 1919 season
1: yeah i could easily see that as uh having happened and you know it's kind of impressive that when we go forward that you know in the 40s we're going to be playing in spite of world war ii but yeah i mean given how low the morale was and guys threatening to strike and all of that i mean this is definitely one of the darker eras of baseball and you know help is coming down the line obviously but you've got kind of these big shadows looming Uh, max flack by the way 263 average for the world series scored a couple of runs walked four times uh we mentioned that big error in game six the dropped fly ball he did score the lone cubs run in game six for what it's worth read into that what you will
0: you know you talked a little bit in the 1910 episode when the cubs were last in the world series lucas about the home fans were booing the team for playing so horribly that you said that you would go back in time and say look the next century is going to suck and you know of course you would turn out to be right if you were doing that but you know you could probably make the same case for Red Sox fans despite the morale being so low everywhere I mean you could make the argument that even though it took the Red Sox 86 years to win another World Series it was another 88 years before they were able to celebrate another World Series since the Red Sox had just won two years earlier and the Red Sox will not celebrate a World Series win at Fenway Park again for another 95 years. So do you think you would go back in time? I know we keep using this time machine possibility here, but would you go back in time to Fenway Park in 1918 and say, look, we know everything's terrible right now, but just so you know, something bad is going to happen, particularly involving your, big player and you're not going to live to see any more success in all likelihood at least not this success would you tell them that
1: i would like to go back in time a because it would mean a trip to fenway park and i am still mad at my dad and my brother for going without me like a decade ago but that's neither here nor there But yeah, I mean, I I think I would because I'm sure I would get the same kind of general reaction of like, what are you talking about? This is absolutely horrible. Yeah, we won, but like nobody cares. It's, you know, go away. And it's like, you guys are going to care. They're going to be the focus of one of the major Sports storylines that lives on for a very long time. And we will get snippets of it here and there throughout the rest of the podcast as the Red Sox make occasional cameos in future episodes, but those are going to be fairly few and far between.
0: And just to make another modern day analogy, Lucas, you know, we're talking about world events and players threatening to strike. Uh, I, I kind of want to go back to a couple years ago when the pandemic first started. Uh, well, there was a flu pandemic in 1918, but our pandemic, you might remember when they were talking about players getting back onto the field, uh, The both the owners and the players were fighting over how much money there was to be spent and how to be split up. And even though we very easily could have gone three or four months of games, we only have getting two months of games because they just could not come to an agreement in a timely manner because they were fighting about all these things. And, you know, there's something horrible going on that's damaging morale heavily everywhere. And people are just fed up with what's going on. And I'm sure people here in 1918 were equally fed up. So just goes to show you how people who don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it.
1: Thank you, George Santayana.
0: So I just think that it's crazy they were having these analogies happen just over a hundred years apart.
1: The more things change, the more they stay the same.
0: Yes, and I hope that we don't see anything like this happen in the year twenty one, twenty two. But I guess I'm not holding my breath, and we're not going to be here to see that anyway. So uh, I guess uh, the future generations are going to have to deal with that. Don't f it up, future generations that are listening to this. Uh, I'm sure in 102 years, this file is going to be completely gone. But, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe robots won't have taken over. So that's it for this 1918 episode. And much to our July, we did not have to stop recording at all. So props to Myla for doing her part here. Hopefully she holds up around right of the bargain as we go down the line, especially in our next episode. So baseball is back. The war is over. We get a returning American League champion and a new National League champion. But this series is not going to be played very honestly. And with all due respect to the eventual champion, we are going to have to focus way more on the loser of this episode, which usually we won't, but it's definitely necessary in this case.
1: As I've been
0: mentioning for the last few months as we've been recording, that's called foreshadowing. Indeed. So we'll have to keep you in suspense for another week. Until then, thank you for listening to this 1918 edition of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. For Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. We will see you next week for the big episode that we've been plugging all these weeks. Until then, take care.